Today's passage will be coming uh, from Genesis chapter 13. We're continuing in our Genesis series. We're going to be working through the whole entire chapter today as you turn there. A few years ago, when I lived in Hartford County, I was involved in a small group as part of another church there. The small group leader was a passionate Christian, a man named Jay. He was on fire for God. He was excited about reading the Bible and teaching it and about learning new things of God. He was a good small group leader. He was a good friend, a good mentor, and a faithful Christian. Jay was the kind of person, the kind of follower of Christ, who inspired us and pushed us to go deeper into our faith. I'm sure you've met people like this in your own life, people who have such an unshakable faith and a love for God that is just contagious to the point that it pushes you to seek God even more earnestly. This was the kind of person that he was. One week, Jay said something that really stuck out to me. He was talking about the Christian man that God placed in his life who helped him to Christ, his uh, spiritual father, so to speak, like when Paul writes to the Corinthians and he said he became their father through the gospel because of how they became the disciples of Christ through his teaching. So Jay was talking about his spiritual father who was a friend, someone that he looked up to. Jay was motivated to imitate him because he saw his great faith and godliness. Jay told us a story of how Jay moved from his hometown and Years passed, so he lost regular contact with this man. After some time, Jay had a chance to go back and visit and found that while his own faith had continued to mature and his faith was still strong and vibrant, he had that fire that I saw and that made me want to become a better Christian. His spiritual father had not continued to mature in the faith. In fact, the opposite had happened. Jay found that his spiritual father had a very weak faith. He was less interested in the ways of God. He was less passionate about the word of God. He was less involved in the church. Jay was shocked. He was hurt. What happened? Where did that strong faith go? I imagine several people in here have experienced something similar to what Jay experienced. Have you perhaps known someone who had a very strong faith that eventually dwindled into almost nothing. It's a a sad thing to see. Perhaps you have in mind your children, perhaps your parents. Maybe you have in mind some close friends, even church friends, maybe a former pastor. Perhaps it's you today. Have you lost your fire for Christ? Have you seen better days in your spiritual journey with God? Jay learned, as Steve mentioned briefly last week, that faith does not stay static. There's no such thing as a holding pattern for faith. Our faith will either continue to grow or cut off from the vine who is Christ. It will begin to wither away as sin slowly begins to snuff out our faith. This is why Peter encouraged the people in his second letter, which we read during our scripture reading earlier, That if the qualities of God and the fruit of the Spirit are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to be constantly moving forward towards Christ as our lifestyle 
and we can never take a vacation from our faith. Christ taught something interesting to the people in John chapter 6. Jesus said this, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So the people then asked Jesus, this natural question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, and his answer I find striking. Jesus said that the work of God is that you believe in him whom God has sent. To have faith, Jesus says, is the work that God has given each of us today. He recognizes that while, yes, God grants us our faith, yet God tells us to work out our faith. And all good works that we can do are really just an outpouring of our faith. So Jesus is telling us here that the work of your life is to believe in him in a world that is trying to kill your faith. Faith is not merely the result of a one-time event. It is a project that you can never set aside. It's your lifestyle venture. And if you stop doing this work of God, which he said that if you don't stop, it endures and wells up into eternal life. But if you stop doing this work, then your faith will suffer. The Bible teaches us that the direction of our spiritual journey is either into increasing measures of godliness or into decreasing measures of godliness. This is what I want to focus on today. Because in our passage, we read about two men whose spiritual journey splits into two different paths. If you compare our faith walk as a climb to the top of a mountain, uh, we're going to see in this passage one man continuing to go up that path while the other man begins to go down. Or we can compare our faith journey to a balloon that only gets tied when you die, which means that every moment before your death, that balloon is either losing air or gaining air. Whenever you're not actively blowing into the balloon, the air comes out and is lost. Abram chooses to pursue God and to work out his faith, while Lot pursues worldly things, and so he begins to lay aside the project of working out his faith. We will see that the decisions they make here in this passage have lasting implications in the rest of Genesis. In later weeks, we'll see Abram's faith continue to grow, and he begins to more firmly take up his mantle of blessing the nations. That's to say he's blowing air into the balloon. Whereas for Lot, we will see his faith continue to fade and atrophy. He's going to start letting the air escape until there's very little left. This passage sets the scene for the coming chapters. So let's read it together, starting in chapter 13 and verse 1. We're going to read the entire chapter. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev and as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, 
Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar for the Lord. Let's pray together. O Lord Almighty, that you would preserve our faith. O Lord Almighty, that you would keep us in your hands. Lord, as we are so prone to sin and to wander, we pray that you never let us wander too far. Lord, we pray now that you would receive all the glory for the understanding and knowledge that you give us in this passage as you work by your spirit to grow us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I want to do for the remainder of our time together is divide our time in three parts. First, I want to talk about the context and the situation. What is going on? What's the problem? And how is it resolved? Then I want to talk about Lot and Abram in turn, their decisions and how what they do will impact their faith. So again, first the context, context and the situation. Secondly, Lot. And thirdly and finally, Abram. If you remember from last week, Abram has just left Egypt, which was just a bad ordeal overall because Abram forgot the promises of God and acted in unfaithfulness. He left a promised land because of a famine and fled to Egypt instead of trusting that God would take care of him and his household. And he ended up putting his family in a very dangerous situation because of his deceit against Pharaoh. After all that is straightened out, Pharaoh... um, kicks them out, and so they head back to the promised land, but not without lots of stuff. Remember, Pharaoh has just gifted Abram with lots of animals um, of different kinds and a lot of new servants. Verse 2 says that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Uh, A small side point here. You might be asking, did God reward Abram's bad behaviors? Abram, who went into Egypt due to unfaithfulness, then lies to Pharaoh to get Sarah into a compromising situation when he, in fact, should be protecting her. All this is just another sign of his unfaithfulness. And the end result is just a slap on the wrist by Pharaoh and then tons of gifts. He becomes wealthy, or at least he becomes wealthier. So we're left wondering, what is God trying to teach us here? Does sin pay off? Did God reward Abram for his bad decisions? 
to make sense of this, we have to understand that Abram has been chosen by God and that God has made promises to Abram. The point here is not one of God rewarding bad behavior so much as God's promises being unavoidable. God chose to bless Abram, knowing ahead of time all the sin that Abram would ever commit in his life. And God did not choose Abram because of Abram's own righteousness. It serves to remind us that we too are showered with gifts and blessings. Actually, we're called fellow heirs with Christ, the sinless Son of God. Even though we too are sinful and have been disobedient, we don't deserve that. Should we say then that God is rewarding us for our sinful behaviors? I think that that would be silly to say. Is God rewarding us for our sinful behaviors because while we were sinners, he sent Christ to die for us? No, I think instead we see a situation where we in our sin have put ourselves in a vulnerable position by disobeying God. And now we're in danger of an eternal spiritual death cut off from God. And God rescues us from this danger through Christ bringing us into a situation where we're richly blessed and able to serve God rightly. That's what we see here in this passage. Abram, by his own foolishness and his own faithlessness, puts himself in a dangerous situation. And God rescues him in such a way that he is blessed richly and positioned to repent and worship God rightly. So this is not God rewarding Abram but God showing undeserved mercy and grace on account of the promises that he's already made to Abram. It should highlight for us the faithfulness of God and not the faithlessness of Abram. Well, back to the main story. Abram is blessed richly, and he returns to the promised land with much more than what he had when he left. As a result of this increase in animals and servants, the land can no longer support both he and Lot together. Between the two of them, Abram and Lot were using the land in a way they hadn't been using before. They were draining, draining the land. Besides that, it's also possible that the effects of the famine were still visible. It could be that the land had not yet fully recovered from that famine. Either way, we see that the land cannot support both Lot and Abram and their immense wealth. And in verse 7, we see that on top of this, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also dwelling in the land which meant that the land wasn't unoccupied. They couldn't just go wherever they wanted because the land was already taken. It was already being used. So between all these reasons, there aren't enough resources to go around to both Abram and Lot. So we see tension arise. Starting verse 5, we read that Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possession was so great that they could not dwell together. So there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Abram could have responded to this in many ways. He could, but um, he reached out to Lot in a warm appeal to their friendship and brotherhood. I think you can get this better with the New King James Version, which translates verses 8 through 9 this way. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren, we're family. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. What a difference we see here in Abram 
than in Abram we saw in Egypt, who was self-serving and calculating. Here we see Abram not creating strife, as he did in Egypt, but dealing with the strife in a way that he and Lot could part without bitterness. He sought out reconciliation before there was a major issue between them personally, and although there were already issues between the herdsmen, Abram saw the importance of de-escalating the situation quickly. Matthew Henry writes, Conquerors reckon it their glory to give peace by power. That is to say, there's this idea that we think we have to overcome and overpower people in order to make true peace. You've got to beat them down in order to win them. And he continues, But the people of God should always approve themselves a peaceable people. Whatever others are for, we must be for peace. We can learn a lot then from Abram here. Here we're seeing Abram's faith being worked out and being strengthened. We see his godliness increasing in measure. Abram's actions remind me of the appeal that Peter made, which we read earlier. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see Abram acting with self-control. Not anger against Lot and his people. Not self-concern, but brotherly love and affection. By offering Lot first choice of where to go, Abram placed Lot's needs ahead of his own. Keep in mind here that Abram is the greater one, so to speak. He is the uncle, the elder. He's the recipient of God's promises. Yet, he sets aside his seniority and esteems Lot as higher than himself. This is true leadership and seniority in the kingdom of heaven. Those who desire to be great in the kingdom of God must become the least. That is to say, the greatest in God's eyes are those who, in humility, serve and love others. This is why God, on at least two occasions, said of Jesus, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. He said this because Jesus put aside his seniority and his excellence in order to go to the cross to meet our needs and for our well-being. So we see in this passage, Abram is being conformed to the image of Christ. Even though he doesn't see it as such, he is being conformed to the image of Christ. And so he's acting in the way Jesus has instructed us to treat each other. As disciples of Christ, we too should, should take Christ's example. As disciples of Christ, we too should be a people who put the needs of others first. Let us be a group of people who serve others when we're able. Let us be a group of people who, who do that. And within a church, if you see the possibility of strife brewing between you and another person, don't wait until things get worse. Act as Abram did, quickly, and with the other person's well-being in mind. Let us be a peaceable people. Note that Abram did not maintain the peace by doing nothing or by ignoring it. We, too, should not think that ignoring a problem or keeping silent about a problem is in any way true peace. Abram addressed the issue head-on with a solution in mind, and he sought Lot out to have a discussion. Let us do likewise. I wonder, then, if there are issues right now between church members that haven't been addressed that need to be resolved with peaceful and selfless discussion? Are there festering problems right now in Greenbelt Baptist Church? If strife exists, 
Or if it begins to develop and you see it happening between you and someone else, don't let it get worse before acting. Reconcile early. Make peace early. Okay, so we looked at the context of this passage. We looked at the problem that was posed in Abraham or Abram's way of handling it, his proposal to Lot. Let's now talk a little more purposefully about Lot and Abram's actions in turn, starting with Lot. Starting in verse 10, we read that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot is our example in this passage of the man whose faith is about to start crumbling because of his decisions. At first glance, you might think, what did he do wrong? I mean, really, he just picked a land that was plentiful and flourishing. He did nothing more than what Abram graciously asked him to do, right? Pick the land you want to go. So, yeah, the issue then is, is not that Lot picked a beautiful land, but that he didn't have God on his radar at all, his radar at all, when he made his decision. He makes a decision that he thought would make him prosperous, a decision he picked a land that he thought he would thrive in, but ultimately his decision will lead to his ruin. That's the issue. Because when you start to make judgments on your own, apart from considering God's judgments, it will also lead to your ruin, even if you think it's a great idea. We get a few clues from the passage that this is the correct interpretation, the right way to look at this. Look back first at verse 10 for our first clue. The fact that we read that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw should make us raise an eyebrow. It should remind us of Eve looking at the fruit and deciding that it was good for food, attractive and desirable for wisdom, so she took it and ate it, even though God has specifically said not to. Or later in Genesis, it should also remind us how the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, so they took whomever they chose. In the book of Genesis, the idea of seeing, judging, and taking is not supposed to be a good connotation. It's a very bad connotation. It's a constant theme that teaches us that we need to step back sometimes and consider what God sees, what God judges, and what he thinks is best. Instead, we see that Lot, that Lot saw. He made a judgment about what he saw, and then he took but this judgment was incorrect because he did not have God or the things of God in mind. So that's our first clue. The second clue that Lot is making a bad decision is that Lot saw that the land was like the garden of the Lord and like the land of Egypt. They had just left Egypt and they found that it was not a very hospitable place. So again, we get some negative connotations here. Lot then goes east, which is meant to remind us that Adam and Eve left the garden of the Lord at the east entrance which reminds us of the fall and original sin. Again, these are not positive connections. So we're getting a foreboding here that Lot is making a very bad decision and he's going to get into some serious trouble. The connection to previous bad events is meant to show us that this itself is a bad event. 
The third clue that this decision of Lot is not a good decision is in verse 13, which says that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. But this did not factor into Lot's decision at all. Now, the text doesn't specifically tell us that he knew the men of Sodom were evil. It doesn't specifically tell us that he knew but chose to ignore it. But I still think that God placing this verse here strongly implies that Lot did know and is meant to highlight the foolishness of Lot's decision. But even if Lot didn't know, even if he didn't know about Sodom's wickedness, he would have found out in a short time, and yet we find later that he didn't leave. We're not talking about people like us who are rooted into where we live and unable to readily move. We're talking about nomads. They lived in tents. The text here says that Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. Not that he built a house, not that he got stuck into a 12-month lease with a local apartment. He moved his people, his herds, his family, his tents right up to Sodom's doorsteps. And he didn't leave. It was a foolish decision. And he, um, well, it was a decision that ended up enticing Lot and his people. Bad company corrupts character, and now he's living among a people who do not honor God and who do not care to honor God. We're going to read later that Lot even abandoned his tents and began living in one of the cities. He got sucked in. We can learn something here. Lot was not a man who had no knowledge of the living God. Lot was, uh, you know, he had accompanied Abram. He left Ur and Haran with Abram. I would say he had genuine faith because he walked with Abram. I'm convinced that Lot knew about the promises that God had given to Abram. He was there when Abram erected two altars for God. He ate with Abram. They were family. This guy knew better. Second Peter chapter 2 even says that Lot was righteous, which means that without dispute, because it's the word of God, Lot was a man of faith, a sinful man of faith, but he was a man of faith. He knew better. He should have known better. But this, then, we see is the beginning of a sharp decline for Lot and how far he fell. When he left Abram, he left a wealthy man and a leader of men, We will see in a few chapters just how far he will fall because of his decision not to continue exercising faith in the God that he knew. This is why I compare Lot to my friend Jay's spiritual father. They were spiritually thriving in his faith. He was spiritually thriving in his faith. And several years later, his faith was drying up and crusty. So we see a godliness in Lot in decreasing measure. His balloon starting to lose air, and it, it begins here with this decision to move near Sodom, because he saw, he judged, and he took, never making his decision based on God's judgment. He stopped pursuing God, and his environment began to chip away at his faith and weaken it until the man of faith that he used to be was just a distant memory. What do we learn from this? Where does this leave us? God is showing us Lot's example as a warning to us. This can happen really to any of us. A decline in faith begins when we stop pursuing God and his will for our lives as revealed in his word and we start looking up, seeing, and desiring worldly things. Now, keep in mind that not all seeing in the book of Genesis is bad, which means for us, not all seeing and taking is bad. Multiple times we're told that God saw and declared things good 
Or here in this passage today, in verse 14, we read that God commands Abram to lift up his eyes and to look at the land around him. So not all seeing is bad, particularly when God is the one doing the observing, and not all taking is bad. We need to evaluate the things we see in front of our eyes based on what God sees, to match up our seeing and taking with God's seeing and God's provision. We need to determine what is right and good for our lives and in everything we do in light of what God has told us. And that's what we're learning here. Isn't this why God has given us the Bible, which is his word? So that we can see very well and navigate our lives very well. God's word is a light unto our feet. A lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So that we can see rightly. It is God's word that gives us the perspective to navigate the world correctly with godliness and righteousness and wisdom. Both Lot and Abram looked up and saw in this passage. But it was Abram alone who saw with the right perspective. Let's now talk a little bit more about Abram. We already talked about the evidence of faith that he showed in the way he responded to the situation with Lot, the way he approached Lot. But I want to back up a little and discuss his response to the whole Egypt fiasco. When Abram left Egypt, it was because he had been sternly corrected by Pharaoh and then he was sent away. He was really dismissed, removed from the premises by Pharaoh's bouncers. So he leaves Egypt, but what I think is so remarkable is where he immediately goes. He goes straight back to Bethel, which is where he had built an altar to God. How easy it would have been for Abram to have tried to avoid God and gone anywhere else. But Abram goes back to Bethel. Starting in verse 3, we see that Abram journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. This is exactly what he did when he had first built that altar. Back in chapter 12, verse 8, we read that Abram moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This is really significant because Abram called upon the name of the Lord twice at Bethel, but under two very, very different circumstances. When Abram first entered the promised land, it would have been with some sense of victory or anticipation. He would have been thinking to himself, this is the land that God has promised to me and to my descendants. This is the land where my descendants will be numerous and a great nation. This is the beautiful land, the possession of my descendants, because God told me so. So I'm going to build an altar to glorify God and to proclaim the one and true God to the inhabitants here he was so filled with worship and adoration of God. He didn't just build one altar. He built two. One at Shechem, one at Bethel. So you see, when Abram was first at Bethel, building an altar and calling upon the name of the Lord, it was a definite high point for him. It was cause for celebration. But when he goes back to Bethel a second time, it is far from a celebration. He left Egypt like a whip dog with his tail between his legs. And as Pastor Steve mentioned last week, there were probably some serious emotional scars with both Abram and Sarai, perhaps some strain to their relationship, trust and respect issues, I would imagine. Who knows how their relationship suffered as a result of what they experienced? Sure, they were given a lot of possessions, 
by the Egyptians. But this was no victory march, as in the first time at Bethel. This is a shameful walk back home. But that's what I find so remarkable, is that Abram did go back home. He went back to Bethel and called upon the name of the Lord, even in that low. There are two kinds of lows in this life. There's a kind of low inflicted on us externally by the world, where everything and everyone seems to be coming at you from all angles. You become overwhelmed by the different forms of difficulties in your life, suffering and persecution. It's perhaps easier to call upon the name of the Lord when the world seems to be set against you, where you find yourself to be a victim. But the second kind of low is the kind that is not caused by outside forces, but by ourselves. It is a kind that is self-inflicted, caused by our own mistakes, and which forces us to come face to face to grapple with our own hideous, horrific sin and evil actions. It's far more difficult to approach God and call upon his name in that kind of situation. This is the kind of load that Abram finds himself in here. He knows he acted shamefully. He knows he acted faithlessly. Yet despite the shame that could have led him away from God, he goes back to Bethel and calls upon the name of the Lord. Do you worship God best when you're behaving rightly and doing all the right things? After sinning, do you try to clean yourself off first and make things right before coming back to God? If you do, let's just call that what it is. That is self-righteousness. This is trying to approach God because of your own goodness, and this does not please God one bit. How do you relate to God in your sin? How easy it is in our sin and shame to avoid anything that brings us face to face with the living God, to avoid praying, to avoid going to church or meeting with other Christians, to avoid reading the Bible. We're expert hiders when, when we sin. So do you have a discipline of coming before God with your mistakes also? Can you worship God and call upon his name even after making ugly mistakes? Part of repentance is repenting before God's presence. Not repenting first and then seeking God's presence. If you are ashamed of your sin, then that is good. That is very good. But go to God with that shame and let him take it away from you. When we go to God with our sin, what comfort you will have. If you don't know this feeling today, you've never experienced that, then you're missing out on one of God's, I would say, the greatest promise God has to offer us. And this promise isn't one that applies only to Abram. This is a promise that you and I can hold on to with confidence that God forgives sinners who comes to him in their shame and their guilt to confess their wrongdoing and to call upon his name. When you do that, it is such a light feeling. When you pray to God in such a way, God will certainly confirm your shame, but then he will take it away. He will relieve you of it. He will remind you of the gospel, which says that he has already placed our sins and our shame on Jesus. When God killed Jesus on the cross, he placed our shame and guilt on his son. And it accompanied Jesus right into the grave. We are now counted dead to sin and alive in Christ. So it is good to go to God when you sin. And with your shame, don't avoid him. 
The strongest act of Christian faith that you can carry out in your moment of sin is to call upon the name of the Lord. This is what we see Abram do. And this is why I say that in this passage, it is Abram and not Lot who is increasing in godliness and faith. We, of course, see evidence of this in two ways. By the way, he repents and goes to God, even in his shame, focusing his thoughts on worshiping God. And secondly, by the way, he approaches Lot with a gracious offer, which, by the way, may very well have been a result of his worship of God at Bethel and his repentance. True worship of God leads to godly ways of treating one another. As we now finish up our time together, I want to turn to the end of the passage. Beginning in verse 14, we we see this. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Here we see God speak. God speaks and reaffirms his covenant promise to Abram, which includes the promise of land and of numerous offspring. If Abram was even just a little bit worried that he gave a portion of his inheritance to Lot, then here God makes it clear that all the land that Abram sees in every direction will belong to his children. Abram's response then is to build a third altar for God here to Hebron. Therefore, this passage begins and ends at an altar. Abram at Bethel calling upon the name of the Lord and Abram at Hebron building an altar in response to God speaking. We see a man consumed with God, looking towards God, trusting in God, worshiping God. We see a man who, even in his mess-ups, calls upon the name of the Lord. As we leave here today, keep in mind that the same things that tempted Lot exist today. We all should look at our life as one struggle to keep our focus on God. The world is trying to pull our focus away from him, away from Christ. So we need to be mindful of that and remember that Jesus tells us the entire work that God has given us is to have faith, to believe in the one that God sent. The world doesn't want us to have faith, and neither does the sin living in us still. So faith is a lot of work. As we go out today, let us be determined in our minds to go out into the world another week and work out our faith by constantly refocusing our thoughts on worshiping God. Stay connected to Christ this week because as the world tries to snuff snuff out your faith, Christ is the one who will be able to preserve and strengthen it. Let's pray together.